America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Klass. So, Ed, I hate to do this to you, but you need heart surgery. No. And <laughs> yeah, are you going to do it, Ron? You're not doing no, it, no, are you? No, I, I won't. No, I don't specialize right. in that. Uh, but you've gone online like a good consumer and, you, you know, WebMD, Mayo Clinic, and, and you've uh, even checked local hospitals in your area. You've talked to some people, your doctors, nurses, friends, colleagues, all of that type of thing. And you've narrowed it down to two surgeons. And you find in the published literature web, on websites, you know, doctor scorecards, that surgeon A has a 65% mortality rate for his heart patients and surgeon B has a 25% mortality rate. And of course, the mortality rate is the risk of dying from the surgery. Which surgeon would you choose? Well, I guess the the short answer would be you'd go with the one with with the less mortality rate. But reality is, is you would say, well, I need to ask some more questions, don't I? Because I need to know if maybe surgeon who's 65% mortality rate takes on the hardest cases. And that's therefore, that's the person that I should go to. If he, if if he or she was special, specializing in the, in the case that I had, well, you know, I guess yeah, I still have a sixty five percent chance. But maybe somebody else giving me that surgery is is way way more. So, no, you're exactly right. I mean, you, in other words, the thought experiment. You don't have enough information. You would want to dive deeper. I would want to know, for instance, the surgeon with the twenty five percent rate is he pre screening patients and only taking on the easy cases? Yeah, there's the other side, right? It, it, right? The system. Like, yeah, and like you say, the, the surgeon A with the sixth, the higher death rate could be taking on the far more complicated cases, the ones that are kind of beyond hope, and he could be the more skilled surgeon. So the point is that this is the problem with measurements: is that they can not only do they drive out judgment. But they can give us a false sense of knowledge, and they can and they can also provide the illusion of accuracy. And I've equated this said to something again. We borrow from the medical community with the iatrogenic illnesses that we talked about. But I've borrowed a concept from the insurance industry called moral hazard. Mm. And you know, a moral hazard is when people have an incentive to take more risks or to act more carelessly. When they're insured. So if you think about fire insurance, it, it causes arson. If you think about unemployment insurance, there's no doubt that it leads to people not um, you know, being unemployed longer. Uh, health in, or life insurance can lead to suicide or even murder in extreme cases. And if you think about federal disaster insurance, you know, people can build on a floodplain because now you're incentivized to do it. These are all what actuaries call moral risks. And it's, it's a huge problem. And 
I think the same type of risks exist when we're talking about measurements. Because just like the surgeon question, looking at those two numbers side by side, and you pick, well, I'm going to go with the lower one, you're, you're being driven to do something that's reckless or careless because you're not basing it on reality. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm reminded of the, you know, the, it's a kind of a funny line that we'll throw away sometimes in presentations and we'll say, you know, 57.8% of all statistics are made up. <laughs> and and it's it's important when you use when you use that joke to do the point eight because it's it's kind of a double joke because the the whole idea is if you, I mean, if you got to go to the, the a decimal plate on a decimal place on a percentage it you're, you're you're really it's the illusion of accuracy. Yes, right. It's the illusion of accuracy. Fifth, you know, no one's going to go. Oh, okay. F- I really needed to know that it was fifty seven point eight percent. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, this kind of goes back, and I know we've touched on this theme before with the McKinsey maxim, this, this statement that what you can measure, you can manage. And yep. uh, I, I know that, you know, Peter Drucker I, never said this. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Peter Drucker never said it. He never wrote it. and He didn't believe it, by the way. What Drucker said was what you, what you measure is what you'll get. Well, yeah. Not, not quite the same thing. But the McKinsey maxim. What you can measure, you can manage. I used to fervently believe this. I used to say this to my, my customers all the time. This was my worldview. Yeah. And now I think it's very, very dangerous because it implies that if we just measure things, we can, we can manage them or control them better. And this is nonsense. You don't change your weight by weighing yourself more frequently or more accurately. And, and I think the whole problem with measurements is we can substitute measurements for thinking. And and it does. It kind of crowds out thinking. And it, and it gives it gives a lot of people the sense of the illusion of control. What well, that's the phrase I like to use. You all right, you have the illusion of control because you have some measurement system in place. And you know, I think you're 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 correct. Now, as with many of our shows, we we have to we have to to state that what we're not saying is that any and all measurement in business is bad. We're not stating that. I, I couldn't state that. Ed. The accountant in me wouldn't let me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a nonsense uh, statement anyway, if you think about it. I mean, businesses, we've always measured things, mm-hmm. right? We, it, it, ever since commerce has been around, we've been measuring things or counting things. The question is, what's important? And how should those measurements be structured. And that's what especially we want to talk about. in knowledge work, right? Especially in knowledge work, because there are w- way too often there are, there are leaders and managers who who say, "Well, well, how are we going to measure that? How are we going to measure that?" And well, we're we're trying to do an innovation here. We're trying to do some outside the box thinking, to coin a phrase. Me- measurement isn't isn't really the be all and end all here. It's it's really about creativity and innovation and. We have to sometimes fail. We have to feel comfortable w- with with at least taking a shot at something, and maybe it's not going to work out. So let's not worry about it. Right, and and as Drucker pointed out, you know, the, the decision in effect is a judgment, and what you start with is not so much the numbers or the measurements, but you start uh, you start with opinions, at, which are basically hypotheses, and then you test those hypotheses. And so, what we're saying is that your measurements, whatever those measurements might be, they need to be linked to a theory, a a, a testable hypothesis of cause and effect. 
And it's the theory that guides what we measure, as I think Einstein said that or something close to that. It's the theory that you know drives the measurement, not the other way around. And we can't and we can't let the entrenched incumbent theory rule our our minds by just saying, well, because that's the we've always done it that way. Well, we've always measured that. Well, so that must be the right thing. And then that's what I see is that there's just there's no questioning of the measurement. There's no is this the right measurement in a lot of cases. It's just this is what we should measure. So that's because that's that's what we've been told to. And the other thing that I see is very few times do measurements fall off the board. You know, the whole balance scorecard and these dashboards, which, I you know, I think are great. Hey, the, the company that I work for sells them. But the, the challenge is, is that 57 different key performance indicators is means you're going to look at none of them. Right. <laughs> yes, 57 equals zero in that point. Uh, right. well, and, the, and, the, the dashboard is exactly that. It's, it's supposed to be the dashboard of the five things that you need to know when you're driving the car, right? Speed, <laughs> yep. oil pressure. That, there's, no, there's a limited number of things. Yep, they're the critical things, yes. basically. And, and you certainly wouldn't want to look at last month's oil pressure and <laughs> fuel. Yeah, in arrears, that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah, How much yeah. gas did I have last week at this time? <laughs> Which is what accountants love to do because we love to play historians with bad memories. But, um, you know, to your point about how statistics become entrenched, you know, one of the largest statistical undertakings ever by the U.S. government was to try and measure the size of the communist countries. And I, I just want to give the example here of East Germany. And in the 1989 edition of the Statistical Abstract of the United States, right, uh, they reported that East Germany was about the same size as West Germany and even had a higher per capita GDP. Now, and they had thought this for a long time. And of course, 1989 was, I think, the year the, the Berlin Wall fell. But any taxi cab driver you know, going back and forth through Checkpoint Charlie would tell you that East Germany was obviously inferior to West Germany, yet the statistics portrayed just the opposite. And it was just a colossal failure from a statistical undertaking. And it, and it does just show you how statistics and numbers and measurements can absolutely mislead us. Yeah. Well, well who is it? The, the, the uh, guy, uh, uh, belief, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Freiman. Freiman. Yes. Yes. Right? You know, and that's exactly what happened in the case of this East Germany. There was the, these these experts. They were and they were all experts, I suppose, that were trying to figure this out. Didn't get very far. It, not dumb people. I mean, it, yeah, this, no, this, no, no. This, this is, you know. Yeah, you know this drew on on economists and in the in the census department and in the department of commerce and even the cia had a hand in the statistical project but they were just just way off and that's one of the things that's not talked a lot about when we talk about measurements you know you, like you say you put out a number with a decimal place or or better yet two decimal places and then it <laughs> looks like it's very very precise and yet there's an enormous amount of errors in our measurements, it just you know, look at how many times the GDP is revised after it's first published, or the unemployment rate, or the number of jobs created. The revisions dwarf sometimes, you know, the change. Yeah, retrospectively, that's ha that's happened in a lot of cases too, hasn't? It? Where they go go back and restate stuff, and it's not it wasn't even close the first time. 
Yeah, in fact, I think the first uh, quarter of this year, wasn't it, that uh, we, we first projected 1.5% growth and uh, growth in the GDP, and then they revised it to a negative yeah. growth for the first. <laughs> so that's a, pretty, that's a pretty big swing. And, and that's, that's not all that uncommon when you're talking about statistics and measurements. So one of the things that I would love to do today is talk about some of the moral hazards of measurements. And this is something that I wrote in the book that you contributed to. And, and maybe you can uh, talk about this from, from the Bill James, what is it, sabermetrics standpoint. Because, right. you know, uh, I mean, baseball is a game that's fixated with measurements, isn't it? it, it oh, it is. It, it, we, we love it. I mean, I, and I have my eight-year-old son is now totally into it. He's got, you know, the, the total baseball books that I used to have pouring over the statistics. It's, it, they, they actually glow when you open these books. But the, the, <laughs> but the point is, is that, that the, what you can't do is you can't determine what any individual player is going to do on the field at any, any particular time against any particular pitcher, no matter how, what statistics you have. Because just about every baseball game I watch, I say, I've never seen that before. That's before. Good. <laughs> and that's why we watch it, right? Right. I mean, if yeah. you knew it was going to happen, how boring would that be? I mean, this is why the whole innovation creativity should take us by surprise. Exactly. Right? Exactly. If, if we could plan it, we wouldn't need it. But so, folks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the seven hazards of our seven moral hazards of measurement. Now, I don't know if we're going to get to all of them, Ed, but we'll give it our best shot. But this is something, again, that I wrote in my book, Measure What Matters to Customers. And, and Ed, you contributed to that book on, on the discussion about sabermetrics. But I wrote that book because I wanted to refute the McKinsey maxim. I wanted to refute the idea that what you can measure, you can manage. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was kind of a cathartic <laughs> process because I was, I was renouncing something that I believed in my entire professional career. And, and now I actually think it's kind of dangerous. Well, great. Well, after the break, we will look into, into those seven moral hazards. But if you want to get a hold of us, first you can email us at tsoe at verisage.com. Visit the website at verisage.com slash tsoe. Or, of course, pound tsoe on Twitter. And we do monitor that during the show. So if you want to get a hold of us today, please tweet away at pound tsoe. And we'll talk about the first moral hazard right after this break. And word from Sage Software. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing 
Together, we plan your marketing strategy, install a website that gets results, and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Stanley Marcus was one of the, the sons of the founders of Neiman Marcus, and he used to have a saying as he was really helping this store make it through the Great Depression that no a market never came into his store and bought anything, but a lot of customers sure did. And that really leads us to this first moral hazard, which is we can count customers but not individuals. And it, what did you mean by that, Ron? Yeah, you know, and I love that. He did say that, uh, that I've never seen a market walk into my store, but a lot of customers have and bought things and made me a rich man. His point was that we tend to aggregate people and call them, whether you call them consumers or customers or you give it this amorphous term like the market, he said, but but it's really just human human beings. And it kind of reminds me of what uh, singer Joan Baez used to say, you know, having a relationship with 100,000 people is, is no problem. It's, it's having the relationship with one person that's really, really hard. <laughs> and and, you know, you could turn that around and look at Stalin's famous remark. And I, of course, I don't think he said it, but uh, there's a lot of debate about it. But, you know, one death is a tragedy, whereas a million is a statistic, right? Once we, once we get past the individual human being, then we just become these globs of statistics and, and measures and aggregates. And, but yet that doesn't describe the flesh and blood of the economic system. No, and this and this manifests itself in interesting ways in or, in organizations. It, it, what I call it, I call it collective noun syndrome. So you'll hear things like "sales just doesn't get it," right. <laughs> <laughs> or yes. you know, "operations is really slowing us down." As if those things are collectives that had an entity up to, unto themselves. Well, who in sales? Who in operations? Right, we uh, there's a there's a person here, right? We keep coming back to this mantra of nobody here but us people. That's the whole point of the soul of enterprise is that it's that we're made of people here, not just these numbers. And the the numbers tend to to to, to give us some I don't know satisfaction that we say, well, at least we measured it, at least we counted it. Right. It's kind of like the McDonald's, you know, over a billion ham- or whatever it is now hamburgers. Okay, great. When are they going to stop this? I mean, I guess the way I think about it, Ed, is if you look at a company like GM or Toyota, they roughly sell, I don't know what it is, between 9 and 10 million cars a year, something like mm-hmm. that, yep. worldwide. Um, 
And you know what? Those are sold one at a time. <laughs> In effect, th- those are sold basically one at a time, one customer at a time. And yeah, we can aggregate them and we can throw them into these analyses, but you've got to deal with the human component here and i think that's the first moral hazard is you know it's easy to to look at aggregates but it misses the individuality right it's kind of like that old saying that i love that you know i can prove on average everybody in the world has one testicle you know now mathematically true (laughs) statistically i'm absolutely right but if if i believe that as a sentient human being i'm kind of an idiot it's kind of like if you have a, a, a a room a conference room and and you know some people are complaining that it's that it's too hot and others are complaining that it's too cold you can't sit there and aggregate them and say well on average you should all be all right yeah and this has manifested itself uh, differently in, in more recent cases under the heading of personas have you got, gotten into any conversations with people about this we, we got to develop who's our marketing persona so, yes right yes and like oh, wait a minute I, I actually much prefer an exercise where we look at the current customers that we do have and, and name them you know fred ethel lucy and ricky you know right, the, right. The, these are the customers let's look at them and then maybe pr- try to predict out and extrapolate what we can do for them tomorrow or five years from now but you know to come up with these you know personas as as if that this is somehow helpful i think it's 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 gobbledygook in my opinion i I agree and you know what this is where one area where big data or analytics might help us because they're getting so good at tracking us on mobile devices and even where we are and what we're searching and things like that that they can they can target things to your specific situation now that can get creepy no doubt about it but it does allow us to treat people a little bit more individualized rather than just these, you know, masses of aggregates. Oh, yes. Well, dude, I got to tell you. So here's the so here's the deal. This is about six weeks ago. I'm flipping through my Facebook at night, and I'm I'm born in Brooklyn, grew up on Long Island, huge New York Mets fan. We're talking about the whole baseball thing. I now sure. live in Texas, right? I get an ad on my Facebook, and this is the ad. I kid you not. It's a it's a New York Mets T-shirt. But the the Mets logo is is carved out and the, and superimposed over the outline of the state of Texas. Wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. So I'm like, I gotta get me this okay, T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> it's like twenty five bucks for the T-shirt, right? I'm like, I gotta have this. Well, it turns out this this is some of the stuff that in why Facebook, you know, market cap through the roof all, on this. These are things that are emerging out of this called dark posts. Right. And this is where we're getting to. We're not talking then just about consumers. We're looking at targeting individuals. And I just thought it was a brilliant strategy. And I think that's that's why Facebook is is in such good shape right now, because I think they look at this as individuals. Sure. Sure. They know where you're searching on the Web. They know what you're doing. And then they're advertiser. They can sell advertisers that target exactly what what you want. Um, Now, I know there's a fine line there with privacy and and all that. But but the point is that I think it's going to become easier to treat us more like individuals. No doubt. That was that was really uh, Stanley Marcus's point, because if you think about companies that treat everybody the same, you know, customers don't want to be treated the same. They want to be treated individually. And look at companies that do treat us all the same. It's usually the postal service or the cable companies. Mm-hmm. And I, I would not hold out either of those as great service organizational models. Not usually. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our first moral hazard, folks, is we can count consumers but not individuals. 
right? That that's that's kind sure. of the point of the first. And then the second moral hazard Ed, is you change what you measure. Yes. And you know, we talked about this a little bit in terms of the prep for the show, the the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, the whole observer effect. Right. And, you know, the fact that when you've got people sitting around in lab coats experimenting, whether it's a human experiment or even a physics experiment, they could have a, an influence on, on the measurements, couldn't they? Yeah. I mean, and as we look this up, you know, Heisen, the Heisenberg principle is very specific to particle physics. And it's not a one for one analogy here because it says as, as you're trying to observe the position of a particle, you are also you're actually affecting by looking at that. You're also affecting the speed of the particle or the trajectory of the particle and vice versa. If you try to understand the trajectory, you can't you can't understand the the uh, the position or, or mass. I'm sorry. That's what it is. Or mass. Of the particle, so it's really odd, but it is related to what's called the observer effect, which is there are certain experiments, especially at the extraordinarily small small level, where you know the the, the instrument itself interferes with the measurement. Right, the instrument itself doing the measuring. Uh, let's say, face it, if you're trying to you're going to try to measure something to a very, very uh, specific degree, for, let's say with temperature, well, you've got to use some kind of a instrument to do that, and the instrument itself must have a temperature. Right. Right. So it's going to affect the the, the outcome of what you, what it is you're, you're trying to measure. So uh, it, it's pretty interesting. So yes, you you we definitely do change. Uh, what you measure, and this this goes back to what Drucker said. You'll measure what you get, right? That's right. what he did say, right? And and you know, it, I like the uh, central bankers have a, a a law they call it's called Goodhart's law that any target that is gonna, that is set quickly loses its meaning because it becomes manipulated over time. I mean, we humans we're scamps, and mm-hmm. if if you put a numerical target on us. Uh, we're going to find ways to game the system, and that's yep. what we do. Whether that's manipulation, whether it's malfeasance, misfeasance, whatever, we'll figure out a way to manipulate it. So that is also part of this. You know, you change what you measure big time. That's right. Well, this is this is why I think salespeople, that, that why salesperson compensation and system is always changing. It's not that that it's because once you put something in place. And this is not a knock at salespeople. Okay, this this is just human beings respond to incentives. We've talked about that over and over again in multiple shows. So they're going to respond to incentives, and they can figure out a way to game certain things so that it it, it acts in their favor. So then, in order to to fix that, go make a correction on that, management has to go in and change the system again. So because it's they they can't they can't keep it being from gamed. Right, right. It also brings up an interesting point about if you're if you've got some type of change management going on in your organization, so you want to create new behaviors. If you stick with your old measurements, you're probably going to get the old behaviors and and the old results. Yeah. If you, in other words, you got to change the measurements too. And like right. you said, with the first uh, moral hazard, our measurements become entrenched over time. And we're not willing to to dislodge them so easily. That they do, they do. And, but but then when, when it what does happen, and of course the one of the great examples of this is the the Comstat policing that took place in New York and other cities in the late nineteen eighties and and nineties, where there were the, the, every every day every every week these uh, the, the the police the at the top level the lieutenants and 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 captains were reporting back to right, right to the commissioner 
uh, about you know crimes in their area and what were they doing to take care of this, this, and this. And they were raked over the coals for this. And sure enough, you know, they went out and they arrested a ton of people because if that's what you get, you know, paid for and told that this is what you should be doing, well, you're going to arrest everyone. And yeah, I guess crime went down, but also you know the the, the rate of then these petty offenses and people being locked up for long periods of time for relatively small nonviolent crimes. I don't know if that's overall all that great for society. Right. It, it does really illustrate the point that you better be darn careful about what you're measuring because mm-hmm. that's what you're going to end up getting. <laughs> yep. Yep. And and that kind of leads to the, the third moral hazard. We'll probably have to take a break before we get through all of this. But the third moral hazard is that measures crowd out intuition and insight. And and I think the, the doctor example illustrates this well you put two very precise statistics in front of people and they just pick the lower or higher one with without any more questions but there's also another statistic i think that we do as a society and the government puts this one out that i believe illustrates this better than anything and and that's what we're going to talk about next ed uh, but what we're going to do first folks is we're going to take a break and but please know that you can contact ed or myself at tsoe at verisage.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your emails. We've got an email here that I think Ed will, will probably try and get to before the end of the show today because he asked specifically about this topic. So we'll talk about Sean's email. And um, folks, you can also go to verisage.com slash TSOE. And after every show, we post show notes that have uh, a discussion about what we talked about, the books we mentioned, other interesting reading or videos that we talked about as well. And you can find that at verisage.com slash TSOE. So uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to hear from our sponsor, Sage One. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. 
Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody and and you can certainly uh tweet us at hashtag tsoe we monitor that during the show we're talking about the seven moral hazards of measurements, and so far, Ed, we've done two. Moral hazard number one is we can count consumers but not individuals, and the second one was you change what you measure. And the third is measures crowd out intuition and insight, and I think this goes to your point, Ed, about how our measurements can become so entrenched because one of the measures that we do as a society is the poverty rate. Now, a lot of people don't really understand what this measurement is or, indeed, where it came from. Uh, Actually, this uh, woman by the name of Molly Orshansky from the Social Security Administration came up with this measurement in the early 1960s. And what she did was she decided that the poverty rate would be set at an arbitrary three times the cost of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's economy food plan. And so she just took this economy food plan. I guess it was based on a certain caloric intake and, you know, the right types of food groups and all of that and just multiplied it by three and said that's the poverty rate. Well, a guy by the name of Nicholas Eberstadt, he's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, wrote a fantastic book called The Tyranny of Numbers. And he talks about a lot of these problems with the measurement system. And he says this is probably the single worst measurement in our government statistical arsenal because it, it looks at the income of the poor and not their consumption. But it's if you want to figure out somebody's standard of living, you don't look at their income, you look at their consumption. I mean, think about a, a kid. Mm-hmm. Kids got no income. So I can't run around though and say your kids are poor. Yes, and, and and I've I've seen this, and now and, and there's lots of dispute about this back and forth. But I've seen people argue that in the United States, it's become one of the signs of poverty is obesity, which you got to take a step back from and go, well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I mean, now I I I personally don't think that that's necessarily statistically true, but the fact that that has even entered as a meme into our thinking uh, that that. Folks who are in poverty because because they tend to eat poorly, right? They make poor right. food choices and right. tend to, but they're getting too many calories for, or or too sedentary. I mean, <laughs> this this really has throws us throws us for a loop. But but you're right. It 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 crowds out this whole idea of judgment and insight, and and that's really the problem I think in businesses is that that they just then turn to the numbers and just say, well, what do the numbers say? I've heard people say that. What do the numbers say? You know, it, 
and the obsession with we've got to have more numbers, more analysis, more measurement before we can make a decision. And it's like, no, you, it's probably not going to help you past a certain point. You, you, it's going to start clouding your thinking. I was working with, with an organization recently. I mean, and this was this week where this exact thing happened. I was, this, this, this poor gal that I was, was, was working with, she is, she is now in our sixth iteration of number creation around a decision that needs to be made. And I, I was finally kind of coaching her through this process. And I said, look, this, this is not about six different ways of looking at the numbers. This is clearly, the, the leader in this organization not wanting to make a difficult decision. Right, right. Yeah, it's almost like it just we need more analysis so I can put off making this decision, kind of the that, whole That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a, yeah. The sole purpose of it was to, and that, so, so the measurement actually then became not, not only uh, crowds out the intuition, but a, a reason for deferral. Right. Defensive decision making. I think Rory yep. Sutherland, when we talked to him, he, uh, he talked about that as well. Right. Uh, and just add, just parenthetically, to close off this poverty rate thing, Nicholas Eberstadt, the guy who wrote The Tyranny of uh, Numbers, uh, recomputed the poverty rate based on consumption. Now, I believe the government has various poverty statistics, and one of them does do this. They look at the poorest consumption, not their reported income. And if you do it that way, the poverty rate goes down to like 2 to 3%. So it, it yields dramatically different results simply depending on how you measure it. And, and that's part of the problem with this. Well, isn't it just, I mean, an even absolute versus relative poverty too? It, that, it brings up that topic as well. I, uh, you know, you've said many times I've heard you say that you'd rather be poor in America today than anywhere else in the world. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, one person in India said, yeah, I want to go to America where the poor people are fat. <laughs> uh, right. But it also brings up another point about you know this idea that it crowds out um, intuition and insight. And if you've ever been bumped off, or it's more accurate to say bribed off an oversold airplane flight, uh, you have a guy by the name of Julian Simon to thank for that. Now he was an economist; he's no longer brilliant with us. Guy. Absolutely brilliant guy, and. He was talking to, I think it was a United uh, flight attendant, and she was talking to, and this was in the 60s, so late 60s, early 70s, when the airlines were still being regulated by the Civil Aeronautics Board, and she was talking about the problem of oversold flights. And, you know, the airlines obviously had tons of data on this, and they knew what the odds were of an oversold flight, because it, it, it was a problem that fed on itself, right? Because there was a probability of being bumped, you would book multiple flights, maybe even under different names, because back then you didn't have to, you know, we didn't have the security procedures we do today. And, and so that would just feed to the problem, because then they'd start selling more seats as less people showed up, and even more flights became oversold. And Julian Simon's shaving the next morning, and he comes up with a solution to this problem. Now, this vexed the airlines for years. And in fact, their theory, it was pretty funny, uh, they would bump old people and military people under the theory that they'd be the less li- the least likely to complain. <laughs> <laughs> it's a theory. <laughs> it, and, and it was probably a really good one because, yeah, those are probably the two of the nicer segments of the uh, population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what Simon came up with is, well, why don't we just do a reverse auction and 
you know, give the person the seat who values it the most and, and pay the person who values it the least. Pay him to get off the flight. And when he wrote the airlines with this idea, and he wrote to the Civil Aeronautics Board as well, they all told him he was nuts, this would never work, or they denied that they did this. <laughs> uh, and he said they wouldn't even run an experiment on it. Now, of course, today, this is common, and once they figured this out and, it, and they tested it and it worked, then now all, every airline does this around the world because it works. But the point, Ed, is that he didn't come up with it pouring through statistics and numbers. None of that would have helped him. He came up with it by understanding a theory or having a theory about human behavior and yeah, testing and, it. And right. And, and, you know, this picks up a, a good thought. Why can't organizations continue to do this it's a brilliant pricing strategy too by the way right because they you know who the re, the reason why they they bump you off for the 250 bucks is because they probably sold a 2500 dollars first class ticket which then had a cascading effect and that the guy who thought he was going to get the upgrade wasn't and then the guy who you know so all the way back to the back of the plane all right so for 250 bucks we get a fair a passenger who's a full full paying full boat at 2500 good pretty good deal yeah. Right? And you've probably sat on commute flights or whatever that are t tend to be very stuffed with business passengers. And when they come on and they're trying to, to bribe somebody off, everybody sits there with their hands full and say, oh, come on, you can do better than that. And they, yeah. and they, keep, ra and they keep raising the price. Right, exactly. But why can't you know some uh, firms do do this in 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 their in cases where they have uh, a high level of or difficulty managing their capacity? Why not bribe off uh, someone who's placed an order and say, "Hey, listen, we're just going to refund you ten percent if you don't mind taking delivery two weeks later." Absolutely. I mean, they probably. I think sophisticated organizations do do this. I mean, certainly the airlines and hotels. This is what mm -hmm. revenue management, yield management, is all about. It's demand-driven pricing. It's the way to. It's one way to manage capacity through pricing. Right. But I was really intrigued with Simon's story because he wrote about this in his autobiography, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't realize it was him who who had this idea. But just how long it took him to to even get an airline to run an experiment. You actually think that he got cab to agree with them and force an airline to run an experiment. And of course, now every airline swears by this method. Right, right. Well, I mean, it just comes down to this, is that all, all measurements are really judgments in disguise. They, they really are. You, you, the judgment comes first, and then the measurement comes second. And I think what we're we're really calling for here is not a lack of measurement, but just make sure that before you affirm a measurement or keep an entrenched measurement around, that you say, "Is this the right thing that we want to measure?" Or, let's make let's go back to the judgment every so often and question as to whether or not it's the right measurement. Yep, and and that brings us to the fourth moral hazard, which are measures are unreliable. I mean, so, you know, we've, I think we've talked in the past, Ed, about the idea that, you know, in this country, when a sheep is born, per capita GDP goes up, but when a baby's born, it goes down. That's all you need to know to, to understand economists are really screwed up people. <laughs> Absolutely. So we have all these economic statistics, and if they've been fudged or made up or there's errors in them, those errors can just carry over year after year, decade after decade. But probably my favorite example of how measures can can be unreliable, and this kind of goes back to you know statistics lie and you know liars use statistics that that quote, but is is the Bain and Company? If you go on their website, it used to be right on their homepage. It isn't anymore. I checked it this morning. It's under our, our results or something on their webpage, and 
it says our clients outperform the market four to one. And they show this little graph of the S&P 500 index and then they show, you know, the Bain and company client uh, returns on the S&P. And of course, Mm -hmm. it's four to one. And I'm looking at this going, okay, these are business consultants, strategy consultants, so really smart people, probably taken some statistic courses, probably understand that causation and correlation aren't necessarily, <laughs> you right. know, linked, right? Wet streets right. don't cause rain. Uh, but this is the equivalent of the rooster taking credit for the sunrise because he crows every morning. Right. I mean, I, I would think it would be a, I'd be willing to bet that Bain's clients outperform the S&P 500 and, and thus they have more money to hire Bain. <laughs> in, in, Excel, <laughs> we, in Excel, we call that out. a circular error, right? That's a, you know that that's that's the challenge there. Well, and you know the other great example of this is something that is near and dear to both of our hearts, which is in professional firms who keep timesheets. You know, the, the, in every every session that I did where I've asked this question, and I said, you know, it, have you ever lied on a timesheet? Every hand goes up. You know, and most time, time have you ever lied on a timesheet? This week, every hand goes up because people put down how much they think they should put down. Right. Or in some cases, what they can get away with. Right. Because it's not always a bad thing. They're not always trying to 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 pad their time shoes with the extra stuff. Sometimes they're saying, well, if I put down that it actually took me six hours, my boss is going to think I'm a moron. So I'm only going to put three. Right. right. So in, in, in many cases, it's it's up and down. Or, and if, then I there was, finished, or if I finished it at, in half the time that they gave me a budget for, I'd go play golf and I'd still write in the full budget amount. Or something, you know, or take a longer right. lunch or whatever. Exactly. And 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 as our one of our colleagues said, these heirs don't cancel themselves yeah. out. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. They don't. All right. Well, after the break, we're going to have to move quickly through the last uh, three moral hazards. But in the meantime, please feel free to email us at T-O-S-E, T-S-O-E at verisage.com, hashtag T-S-O-E on Twitter. And we'll be back right after this message from Sage One. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? 
Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Moral hazard number five is the more we measure, the less we can compare. And, you know, comparing information has a place, but it's got to be tempered with a theory of what is being observed and if there's a, a good reason for it and an understanding for the underlying causes. And, and I think the biggest place, Ron, that this manifests itself is in the not-for-profit space, believe it or not, because I know you and I have heard this, and a guy by the name of Dan Paletta has written a great book called Uncharitable, How Restraints on Nonprofits Undermined Their Potential. And w- whenever I hear, whenever something happens and people, uh, catastrophe in the world happens uh, people on Facebook go oh I'm going to give to so and so charity or the, 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 someone will inevitably say well how much of that dollar that I give is going to get to the actual people Right. right. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to go to the actual cause because I, I don't want to spend my dollar and have 40% of it go to administrative salaries and you know Paletta in his TED talk and I in his book I believe also makes this great point that you know if somebody if we want to get some of the best and brightest working on some of these challenging problems that really face society then we're going to have to start paying people in line with that he says you know it's great if you want to make 50 million dollars selling violent video games we say you know absolutely go for that but if you want to make half a million trying to cure malaria well then you're a parasite because you you can't make half a million dollars by trying to cure malaria that's just not right right you know no he's he's so right about this and the measurement crowds out the result just because 90 cents of every dollar goes to the cause doesn't mean the charity's effective. It, you know, he he throws out the thought experiment and I think it's a very very uh, compelling point. If the Jonas Salk Foundation found the cure for polio but spent 80% of their donations on overhead, would you care? Yeah, the answer and, should and be no, a no. resounding no. But yeah. people say yes. They say, "Oh, yeah, it would matter." I, I don't, but it 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 it's it just the measurement is crowding out the judgment of the result, mm-hmm. and and I think that's the point. The, the 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 more we measure, the less we can actually compare. Because just like the doctor example, yeah, I compare sixty five percent to twenty five percent mortality rate, but there's more to it than that. Right, and that takes us to the sixth moral hazard, Ed, which is the more intellectual the capital the less you can measure it. Now, we kind of talked about this in our show, The Economy in Mind, and this is why we've titled the show Business in the Knowledge Economy, because now we know 80% of the developed world's wealth resides in human capital. But if you think about accounting statements, 
they don't measure this. They can't measure it. In fact, what they do with human capital is they expense it as salaries and wages, right, on the income statement. And it, it doesn't ever show up as part of the, the, the wealth of, of a company. And, yeah. and so this is why account, like the accounting statements, you know, the income statement, the balance sheet, they're called the three blind mice because they don't really comprehend the fair market value of a business. All they're designed to do is record the value of a transaction that's already taken place. They can't peer into the future and look at value because accounting is not a theory. It's simply a measurement. It's an identity equation, as you say. And and you look, it, it gets worse because it gets extrapolated out. And you and I have talked to, to thousands of accountants. And the, it's the in the end, accounting debits equal credits, right? Well, then that gets extrapolated out. That if you know, if I've got a, if I have a sale on my book and it's you know debit or credit for me, then somebody else's it's an expense and it's the same debit or credit for them, and it's the, and the amount is the same. So therefore, zero sum game thinking, and we, we're back we're back to that again because it, it's got to be the same. You know, yep. there's no measurement of where any of this stuff this stuff comes from. But I love what David Boyle wrote in the Sum of Our Discontent where he says, you know, decisions by number are a bit like painting by the numbers. They don't make for good art. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think they make for good decisions either. No, they don't. I mean, if you look at data, reason, calculation, and measurement, all these things, you know, they they can only produce conclusions. They don't inspire action. They're not going to inspire you to be creative or do something new or, or step out on the ledge or take a risk. Right, they can only like uh, Clayton Christensen says that data is is by definition about the past, mm-hmm. and yet if we want to peer into the future, we have to have a theory. We have to use theory or some type of hypothesis that hey, if we do this, you know, then we're going to create a whole new market. Like I'm thinking of Apple with the iPod or the iPad. Right. And then in the last few minutes that we have left, that actually leads directly into moral hazard number seven, right? Which is that measurements are lagging by definition. It, yeah. I mean, it, and especially with accounting, because it is a called accounting, like as in accounting for yesterday. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is something I think we've talked a lot about, you know, a lagging indicator. By definition, any measurement is by, almost by definition lagging, unless you're getting it in real time. Then it can become a coincident indicator. But to use a lagging indicator to, to run your business is kind of like using your smoke alarm to time your cookies. And we have to understand, even if we're looking at benchmarking data in our competition, that these are all lagging indicators and you're only looking at the, the result. You're not really analyzing the effect or the process that led to that result. It's My favorite example of this, Ed, it comes from Walter Williams, the economist, who says, if you had a poker game, if you had three guys who played poker regularly on a weekly basis and these three guys, you know, the first guy won 75% of the time, the second guy won 20% of the time, and the third guy won 5% of the time. What conclusions could you draw about that game just looking at the results, looking at the numbers, the measurement of, mm-hmm. of winning? Right. And he says you can't draw anything because you could say, well, maybe A is a great poker player or maybe C is a terrible poker face or whatever, or maybe A is cheating. But you can't draw any of those conclusions until you know something about the process. Right. It's, it's not enough just to look at the, the, the result. You have to understand the process. And, and that's one of the problems with the fact that all of this data and measurements are lagging indicators. Exactly. Well, let's spend a few minutes, if you if you will, on, on, on Sean's email that he sent us. And, and by the way, we do post about, about a 
four or five days ahead of time what our next show is going to be about on uh, verisage.com slash TSOE. So if there's a topic that is of interest to you and you'd like us to answer your question on the show while we talk about it rather than retrospectively, uh, p- please uh, pay attention to verisage.com slash TSOE and, and feel free to send us your question. Um, Sean, Sean says that uh, he is very interested in this topic because he's got a presentation about KPIs next week. And and he, he believes they have value, but he also believes that there's an inherent risk, and this is what we were talking about. If you measure the wrong thing or if you rely on them too much for decision-making. And I love what he says here. He says, I believe KPIs are a good tool in a toolbox that a manager can use to oversee operations. I believe, however, that the person wielding them must have knowledge, skill, and experience to know how to use them, when to use them, and what to do with them. Right, just as you wouldn't build a building alone with just a hammer, you can't mon- you can't monitor and manage with one and only one view. Yep, I, th- I I think that's so true. You have to understand. I think these moral hazards of measurements, and and don't let them crowd out judgment. Don't let them crowd out intuition and wisdom. Clearly, and and that's and that's really again our mantra here is not that we, we're suggesting no measurement. That would be completely and totally foolish. But we are suggesting that you revisit the metrics that you are looking at. And please don't have 27 key performance indicators because if you've got 27 of them, it's not key anymore, right? It's it, th- three to five, right, Ron? Yeah. And, and, and they, should, they should change because you should be testing different theories at, at different points in your business. Uh, you know, there is, there is something I think to be said for some consistency. If you're using, let's say, net promoter score as a measurement for your customer satisfaction or loyalty, there is something to be said to, to, to play that out from a long-term perspective, a three to five year period. But, but it's still, there's still a danger in getting totally stuck on that because I can't tell you now since, since net promoter score has become so ubiquitous how many times, and this just happened to me last week when I got my car serviced, you know, they, before they send me away, they say, they're going to call you with a survey. Is there any reason why you can't give me a nine or a 10? Right. Yes. And it's, they, be, so it's being gamed. They, they, they almost coerce you or in my case, they give me free oil changes or a certificate for a car detail if I give them a great review. Right. I mean, it's like, come on, what's going on here? You know, what are we doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, I mean, it's a great comment, Sean, and I, and I think you're exactly right. And I think that's what these seven hazards really illustrate, that we have to be very careful about our measurements and not stay too committed to them. Like the poverty statistic, for example, is a measurement that's completely meaningless, but yet we're so invested in it that we're not willing to analyze it and kind of hold it in front of us and challenge our assumptions about it. So those are our seven hazards. And, of course, again, folks, we will post all these on our show notes with more detail, mention all the books we cited and some other interesting things that you can look at as well on this topic. And, uh, Ed, thank you so much for this. This has been uh, this has been great. Again, this is very cathartic for me to go through these because at, at, uh, <laughs> at one time in my life I believed in the McKinsey maxim. Yeah, we all did. So You're forgiven. Very... <laughs> I absolve you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. Well, folks, thank you. And uh, we will see you next week here. And we will be doing uh, the top business myths, part one. And that's our topic for next week. So until then, uh, thank you very much. And thank you to our sponsor, Sage One.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, where we'll be talking about the top 10 business myths, part one. And, of course, feel free to email Ed or myself at tsoe at verisage.com. See you in 167 hours, folks. <laughs>